Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, let's pause and let's pray. Before we get started, we're going to be in chapter 6 tonight. So let's pray. Father, once again, it is good to gather together and I pray, Lord, that you would guide our time here tonight as we go through this chapter in the book of Revelation. Father, that it would speak to us and you would use it to help us, Lord, in our daily life in this world and with you. And I pray you'd give me clarity of thought and I pray again, Lord, that our time in this book would be useful, Lord, and helping us to learn more of who you are and maybe even dispel some of the, uh, I don't know, misconceptions about this book, Lord. I thank you again for this time and for our time together. We thank you for Denise and Michael and the team making it back safely from Haiti. I know they're exhausted, uh, but I pray you would continue to refresh them. And Lord, may we just hear of the great things that you did in them through that difficult time, Lord. And again, praise you, God, for your faithfulness. We thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation chapter 6, it's easy for us to pause and make these breaks because of the chapters, but again, as you read through the whole of the book, there isn't the pauses that maybe we give to it in the chapters. However, chapter 4 and 5, we've left a heavenly scene where all creation is worshiping, the Lamb is in charge, reigning life as we know it. But before we tackle the evil that is present, there had to be a revelation of the things that we don't see, right? So we're going to look at some of the evil that the church was facing and has faced throughout history. But before we look at that, we really do need to remember how things are. And that's what John is doing. He's helping us to see the picture before we step into the mud, before we step into the difficulties. There's a connection between the worship that is taking place before the throne and what is taking place in history in this world. And Jesus opening the seals that we're going to see is providing us that connection. The things that are happening aren't just happening Christ is over those things. He is opening, revealing. Remember, the book of Revelation, this is revealing Christ's reign in our world and in history and in the difficult times that were taking place when John was writing this and that take place throughout history. We don't have to wait to unravel a puzzle. We're not having to decipher some special secret code to understand what is going to happening. Jesus is opening the seals and is revealing it to us. And so that's what's taking place here. If you were to go to a doctor or even a counselor because you have a pain, Right, Doctor, I've got this pain in my side, and I, I'm not sure what's going on, but the pain has been so intense that I finally have to go to the doctor. 
the pain is just the symptom of something that's really taking place that's probably more serious than the pain, right? When my son Daniel was having an appendicitis, he was complaining about a pain, but we didn't know what it was. We actually thought he was faking to try and keep from going to the grandparents' house the next day. But it turns out that that pain was because he had an inflamed appendix that was about to burst that was causing some real problems. And so what the doctor's job is is to go through the symptoms to find out the root of that pain. The same thing's true in counseling. You go to a counselor and you say, you know, this situation, this relationship is a problem. You know, my wife is just, you know, giving me a hard time and and the kids are doing this. And then the counselor, really what he does is try to unpack all that's going on to find out what's really bothering you. Because it's more than just usually what you say. It's usually stemming from something deeper. And so that's what we are doing here. We're, we're trying to get to the root of what's going on in the world around us. Why are things the way they are and what is happening? History is filled with pain. It's filled with war, with famine, with murder, with catastrophes. And it's also filled with beauty. It's filled with kindness. It's filled with grace. And these are working alongside each other. Why? How? What, what is going on? How do we find purpose or meaning into these things that are taking place? The seven seals that we're going to look at are like seven mini-sermons. Even as the seven letters to the seven churches... They're not meant to be all-encompassing with every difficulty that the world is facing, but it's giving us enough to be able to come to some conclusions, to give us insight into the craziness that we live in while holding on to a faith in God that he is still on a throne and doing something. And so let's start with verses 1 and 2. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Horses are a symbol of battle, and we're going to see Four horses that are taking place here. And war has been a devastating part of the human history, right? I mean, it's been something that has been taking place all of our lives. There has never been a time in human history where there has not been war. And the ability to wield power and to dominate others is a reoccurring nightmare in our history. The four horsemen owe something to Zachariah's book and his image of the four horsemen, although these have a different role. There are some who believe this first horseman is actually Jesus because it's a white horse, and then there's appearance in chapter 19 also of Jesus on a white horse, and so they're marrying those two chapters to try and get them to be the same thing. But I don't believe that that's the case. I don't believe that what we're seeing here and what we see in chapter 19 are equating Jesus as being the one who's on the right horse. I think that it has more to do with conquering the drive of kingdoms on earth who have charged forward to try and overcome nations and claiming their sovereignty, which is the idea of wearing the crown over them. Um, When the seals are open, the forces of human conquest and oppression are allowed to do what they do. And we see them, in a sense, at their worst. This takes place before the presence or the awareness of God that we just saw in chapters 4 and 5. Remember, John wept because no one was able to open the seal, but then he saw the Lamb 
who was able to do this. And now the Lamb is opening, revealing again what is taking place in human history. And so this white horse is this idea of war, this idea of conquering, this idea of domination, that man is driven by power. He wants to control. And this is a story we've seen throughout Scripture. Remember the Tower of Babel. Remember that whole idea was that we want to ascend so that we can know the garden, that we might know good and evil. All this is about us having our own sovereignty having control over our lives. And I think the idea and quest for power is actually driven by fear, fear that we are not in charge, fear that we are susceptible to something other than what we deem appropriate. I think it plagues humankind. If there is no belief in God, then, yeah, there's a lot to be afraid of. But you see, in the shadow of chapter 4 and 5, where there is a God who is reigning, then what, is the, what are we trying to conquer? What is the need for conquest? Verse 3, we see the lamb opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. In the second seal, we see a red horse, and this symbolizes really more the event of war, where the white horse is the conquering, it is the motive, it is the driving for power. Here we see how that power is wielded, and it is done through war. The taking away of this appearance of peace, and this again has happened in every century, everywhere on earth. War is how we solve our problems, apparently, because it's been what we've been doing since recorded history. We try to extinguish the problems. We have an enemy, we crush them, right? We don't try to cooperate. We instead have this competition. If you win, I lose, so I need to win so that I can maintain power. And this is a driving force that seems to be, again, showing up time and time throughout history. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, James says, What causes fights or wars and quarreling among you? Don't they come from your desire that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, right? And so here is this, you want and you don't ask God for it, so you try and get it yourself. And how do you get it? You war, you fight, you quarrel, you battle, you strive. And and that's what we see taking place here. Eugene Peterson says, War is a red horse, bloody and cruel, making life miserable and horrid. We've all seen the movies of war, whether it's Saving Private Ryan or or what, and the atrocities that take place. We all know of post-traumatic stress disorder that happens to many of the people in our military because they go through extreme things and it shakes them for the rest of their life, right? We've heard war is hell. We, we have this understanding that terrible, terrible things happen in war. And we don't really see the half of it. We see it on the screen. We don't experience the terror. And even the people in the military, a lot of them aren't in the hand-to-hand kind of combat that would take place at the time where this was written. It's violent. It's awful. The things you see traumatize you. Imagine when there were no guns and you couldn't shoot someone at a distance. It took place with a sword hand-to-hand, right? It's just, and again, we've seen the movies, Gladiator stuff. It's just brutal. 
And so we see this picture that's taking place. And again, this is a horse, and it represents what war is and what war was and what war continues to be. Again, all these things are these plagues, so to speak, these things that show up in humanity that have been there and are still here. And it's because of the human condition. Verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard the sounded what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, the black horse represents famine or economic problems. It represents the lack that is there when you cannot provide for what you need. There is an ability to feed everybody on the planet today, but we just don't want to. We'd rather profit. We'd rather use it to get control or power, using resources as weapons. Remember years ago when the like farm aid, or I forget the name of all those things that were live aid, were being done to try and help the tragedies that were taking place in Africa, and just tons of food were sent to Africa to help the people, and the government let them rot on the docks because it was using famine as a leverage to control the people. And so children were starving to death when there was food that could have been given them because they wanted to use it as power. It's estimated, and this was 2016, that there were 815 million people who were hungry. It didn't say starving. I don't know what the difference is. I guess starving is more where it's more detrimental, but that we're hungry. And it has been, again, a tool to control people throughout history. Think of that. You can feed a child, but you choose not to because you want control and power. We could feed people all over the world, but we want to make profit, and so we end up destroying food so that we can raise the prices so that our means of economy can succeed. There's something wrong, right? There's something wrong when we can care for people but choose to make money instead. And this was very much the case in pagan Rome where the economy was connected to various forms of worship. Remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas delivered a woman who was possessed. She was going around bothering them, and finally Paul said, come out and delivered her, but she was someone who was used to make a profit and sell the idols, and so then they complained because they were taking away their income by delivering people from demonic possession, right? It's like, okay, we're making our money off of this, and you're destroying our means of making money, so we got to put an end to you. And so the, the church at this time is living at a place where the economy is being driven by pagan worship. And this idea of you don't need to worship a foreign god, you don't need to worship idols, you don't need to go into these temples and sacrifice, was changing the economy. And so what happened is they started to make it so if you were a follower of Christ, you could not buy or sell because you were causing problems to our income. And so here was a very big reality to the church or much of the church at that time. The medical industry today is often driven by making money more than it is by making people healthy, right? In the United States, we sell more medication to help people deal with illness than we do to help people prevent illness. And it's big business, right? 
And so this idea of a black horse and the idea of famine and economic disaster is, again, the idea of how does man use his power? How does man deal with these things? And this is how it shows up. It showed up that way in the time when John was writing that. It shows up that way now. I think we are becoming more aware of it, but it's something that is still taking place. Verse 7, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of four living creatures say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, the pale horse is the result of human power and consumption. It is kind of the culmination of all these things that are taking place. History has recorded time and time again that war, famine, and a thousand other things have carried people off to death long before their time, right? A change in a government, and you have thousands of people being killed because of the change. We have the killing fields, right? We have China and what happened with uh, Reverend Mao, not Reverend Mao, but uh, Chairman Mao, and we have these changes where all of a sudden millions of people die because of a change. And this pale horse that represents death and the grave following behind it is what has happened. It is this wave of human history that has left death in its wake to millions upon millions of people. And it's been the theme of humanity. These four are a picture of the human condition. They're not an exhaustive list of everything that's taking place, but they capture the basic ills that humans inflict on one another. And not only on each other, but also on everything around, including the animals, including all the things of the earth, the plagues that are there. Uh, These are seen in contrast to the throne And the sacrificial lamb who is worshipped, they stand out in this contrast. Remember, we just came from this beautiful picture of all creation worshipping God. And now we have this other picture of humanity being laid waste by the evils of human heart and condition. And they're happening simultaneously. These horsemen are symbolic. Okay, John wasn't expecting the readers to look out their window in Ephesus and see these, you know, characters come riding down. They are meant to be symbolic. I don't believe that they're meant to be chronological either. I think it's more of an overlapping on top of one another. Just like in music, you can have a number of things happening at the same time. You can have harmonies where notes are taking place at the same time and work together. I think that's what's happening here. We're not saying, oh, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. I'm saying these things are something that is happening in humanity, have been happening, and they happen together, and they've been happening throughout humanity. In the same way, we shouldn't think that this sevenfold sequence of seals being open is supposed to take place before the other sequences that are going to take place. In other words, the trumpets that we're going to see taking place in chapters 8 to 11 or the bowls of wrath that take place in chapter 16. But each of the sequences and the things in between are a fresh way of seeing the complex reality that we're living in. All these things are happening at the same time. John is trying to reveal to us what is taking place in humanity and in the presence of God. And it's unfolding continually before us. If we look at the problems and pains of this world from this angle, from the angle of God's perspective and humanity and these things happening... God's answer is to draw out, right, the arrogant wickedness of human beings 
to its full extent and to show that he is bringing his people through safely, which we'll get in chapter 7. He is going to see them through. In spite of the worst that takes place, God will care for his people. Even though, we'll see, some of them have died and will die. But if we look at the same problems and pains from the vision and angle, God's answer is to allow the forces of destruction to do their worst so that he can establish his kingdom fully and finally over the entire world. And we'll see that in chapters 8 through 11. If we take time and begin the story again from these different angles, even in chapter 12 and 13, we'll see a full depth and the horror of the problem of humanity as it starts to show up more and more. And that's actually God's answer is going to inflict onto the rebellious world something that is like the plagues of Egypt, right, that took place. Before rescuing his people, there was this tremendous outpouring of wrath. We saw these things taking place, and we're going to see them again in chapters 12 to 19. And, and then, and really not until the darkest hour can be dealt with, until these things unfold until they kind of come to their culmination. And then and only then can the new heaven and new earth be established without any fear of this lingering control of humanity, that it's going to continue to be unleashed, that the sickness will continue to go unhealed, that the sadness will continue to produce grief. It's not until they kind of run their course that we're able to see more complete healing. We see that all the way up to chapter 20, where all these things are unfolding. And again, I don't think they're sequential. I think they are layered, and they are helping us to see all that is taking place. I know this isn't what we want to hear necessarily, right? I I just want to hear that everything's going to be good, that God's going to make it easier for us, and that bad is going to disappear, and that I'm going to escape and go to heaven, and everyone else, whatever happens to them, happens to them. But that's not the picture that's being painted. The picture that's being painted is for those who have faith in Christ to hold on to this faith while all these things are taking place, and knowing that they're going to take place, and that you can hold on to this faith in spite of these things. Again, it's just like the news from the doctor or the counselor. It might not be what we want to hear, oh, you have appendicitis, but it's what you need to hear. That pain, it's because of this. This evil, it's because of this. The traumatic situation of the world, it's because of humanity and all the things that are taking place. Now there's a shift from the four horses and we start to see, again, a different angle and more of this picture that John's trying to to paint. You know, if you play chess, it's one of those games where if you're good at it, and I'm not, so I'm just saying these things because I've heard about this. If you're good, you think multiple moves ahead of time. Right, you, you look at the board and you see three or more moves ahead of time. So if this person moves any of these pieces on the board, you have the opportunity to counter because you're already thinking ahead. And in chess, there's really only three ways to end the game. One is someone wins and the game is over. The second way is that it's a... A draw. It's a stalemate. Both agree that, hey, no one's going to win. It's not going to go anywhere, and so they quit the game. And the third way is when someone gets frustrated and they kick the board and send the pieces everywhere, right? It's like, I can't do this anymore, and they just quit, and they kind of give up on the game. 
Well, God's not going to lose, okay, and he's not going to tie, and he's not getting frustrated and going to knock the board over. But it's a long game. And so we have to be thinking how God is at work, and there are many moves still to be played that maybe we don't understand. But he's not going to get frustrated, knock the board over. He's not going to give it into a tie. He's going to win. But he's just thinking ahead of time. Verse 9, we see, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. This is interesting. It's the only place really where we see where those who have been slain are, and it is here under the altar, which is just an interesting thing. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, that's not a fun picture, right? Now, this is a cry that has echoed throughout Scripture and throughout humanity. I mean, from David in the Psalms to the children of Israel and Egypt, how long, Lord, will this endure? We, we cry these things out today when we see injustice, we see human trafficking, we see uh, child abuse, we see the famine and neglect, and we wonder how long, God, will the world be able to stay in this condition? And how long will those who are trying to do what's right suffer injustice for doing those things? Right? Here are people who have given their lives from following Christ only trying to do good to their brother and love their neighbors themselves who found Death by sword or fed to lions or crucified. And the church is going, how long? I mean, what's going on? Christ is the Messiah. He he died and rose again and has ascended. But Rome is just conquering everything. What's going on? Like that, what in Sam Hill's taking place here, right? What what's going on here? These souls are conscious of the fact that the world is still unjudged and unhealed. And I think we're still conscious of that, right? Things aren't right. There's still too much injustice. There's too much wickedness. And wickedness, including the wickedness that brought them to their martyr's death, has gone unchecked. Again, John is writing at a time where they are losing their lives for their faith. And it seems like there is no justice. There's nothing being done about that. They long for the justice, as all of us do. Right? I think all who have been deeply wronged long for justice. All who see the wrong that is done want to see justice. They long for it. And it's not just you know a petty or spiteful vengeance, but it's a heartaching desire to see the world brought into balance at last. And their own harsh treatment to be vindic- vindicated. To see what's been done to them have its rightful place. They are told that they have to wait. The game's still going. And that's something we need to remember. John was telling it to the church who was suffering persecution. You need to wait. God's still working. He's still on the throne. Creation is still worshiping him. All this injustice that's taking place, God is aware of it, but you have to wait. Something needs to happen before this is fixed. Something needs to take place so that this 
run of wickedness can be put to an end. And even as Pharaoh's stubborn heart, remember it said that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It was so that the mighty works of God could be revealed. You see, Pharaoh wasn't going to change. And so what God did was use his stubbornness to bring about the change that really needed to take place. It seems evil has to be allowed to continue, right? Jesus said the weeds and the wheat have to grow up together. You can't just pull them out, otherwise you're going to damage the wheat. There's something that needs to take place, and it has to be done in allowing these things to take place. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, it says that the wickedness of the Amorites has not yet been completed. In other words, they had to fulfill their wickedness before the destruction could take place because it has to run its course so something can be learned, so that something can be seen, so that it could reveal something in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the problem. And here it seems two things go together. First, the evil represented by the four horsemen must reach its height with the martyrdom of yet more believers. And second, though that martyrdom will itself be part of the means of God's just judgment, as we're going to see, this is how the Lamb's victory is worked out in practice. The Lamb's victory isn't worked out in battle, in fighting. It's worked out in martyrdom. Jesus said, if I've given my life, then you will have to give your life also. That was really telling us how we are supposed to live, how we are supposed to deal with these things. And it's a hard thing to accept that God doesn't want us to go out and seek our own vengeance, that vengeance belongs to him, and that we need to trust him and not take this idea of I'm going to get an eye for an eye, I'm going to get mine from you. But to take the attitude of Christ, though he suffered and trusted himself to him who judges justly that we are to take that mentality forward. And that's not an easy thing to do. Verse 12, it says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and the mountains and islands were removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? Again, there's a lot of Old Testament symbolized here. The symbolism and the language is something that was very prominent even in some of the passages. Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, it says, The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars, and they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Right? It's, it's this picture of judgment that is going to be taking place. The language about the sun turning black, the moon becoming red, the stars falling from heavens and so on. Again, it's regularly employed as a way of speaking about what we would call earth-shattering events. These are traumatic events. It was like, you know, time stood still. It's a way of trying to make an, a, um, a point of something that happened giving it its due language. You know, September 11th was more than just a day. 
It was a day that echoes in our hearts and minds because of the tragedy, because of the violence that took place. Right? There, there are scenes like that where how do you find language for these things that are traumatic? And, and that's what's happening here, trying to find the appropriate language. And there's this vivid symbol and metaphor that's being used here. Again, if stars are falling, I don't think people are going to be worried about rocks falling on them, right? If stars are falling to the earth or falling from heaven, you're not going to be worrying going to just a cave to hide. But it's symbolic. It's talking about the devastation and the calamity, the idea of, you know, mountains being leveled and things shaken. I know for years I, I was like always watching how many earthquakes have taken place this year because, you know, there's going to be more and more earthquakes and all these things that are supposed to be happening. Again, a lot of this, I think, is just language that's meant to bring about the idea when there's, there's a shattering event. Something traumatic is about to happen. And we should see the revelation of the sixth seal as a time of huge political and social turbulence, even as described by the prophets, right? There is this cataclysmic change that is taking place. And all the people who were in charge no longer are. And John is writing about that. And the thing is, this happened in Rome. There was a cataclysmic change. Rome fell apart. But it was thought at this time, Rome will never fall apart. They're too strong, but there was still a lot of years ahead. This game was still going on. And they didn't think Rome was going to end, but it did. The Soviet Union... Right, A whole nation that was supposedly one of the strongest nations in the world, gone. Right, It could happen with the United States. We think we're so strong and lasting. Nations rise, nations fall. Things change. And what people thought was so secure, they find they lose it, right? People who are wealthy have made their money, millions and millions of dollars, and then all of a sudden it's gone because of a stock market crash or because of a, a battle or war that takes place in some part of the world, and now everything that you've invested in it is gone, right? And, and so you see people who seemingly, to me, have more money than I will make the rest of my life. You should be happy, and they're still trying to make more because they're afraid they're going to lose it all. Why? Because you can. You can. Not even the money. What if you get cancer? Everything you've known will be gone. And so this whole cataclysmic event is talking about this change that is going to happen they all realize that they are entirely at the mercy of the God who rules the world, that all their power, that all their schemes will come to nothing. You see, this unfolding of look at all the wickedness that's taking place, all the wickedness, the saints crying out, how long, how long? And then all of a sudden we see it's going to come to nothing. All that they've wanted, they will eventually cry out and try to hide from, says, the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. What a strange phrase, right? The wrath of the Lamb. It sounds like a contradiction in terms. And just as John has to learn to see the lion of the tribe of Judah as the sacrificial lamb, right, there is this identity that is taking place. Just as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus had to change what they thought the Messiah was going to be, and Jesus revealed to them, didn't he have to suffer? And then their eyes were opened. The, the wrath of the Lamb 
The Messiah is being redefined around the, the scriptural story of suffering and vindication, which Jesus told them was going to happen. And so the very notion of anger itself is radically redefined by the fact that it is the Lamb's anger. It is the anger of the one who has embodied in his own death God's self-giving, self-sacrificial love. And so now anger is seen in a whole different picture. The anger of the lamb is the anger of the one who gave himself fully uh, without abandon for the entire world. That's the anger of the lamb, but they don't see this. Just like a child who blames its parents for burning its fingers when they were playing with matches, right? It's like, it was your fault. Why are you blaming someone else? You have to take responsibility for what you've done. They misunderstand the judgment and the anger of the lamb. It is what happens when we reject love. It is what happens when love has given everything for us and we turned our back on it. Those who are afraid of it are those who are determined to resist it. And because they've resisted it, to them it is fearful. God never stopped loving, but when you resist such love and turn your back on it, it becomes terrifying. And I believe that that's the picture that we see here. We see a world that has resisted God's love, resisted the lamp, resisted the sacrifice that God has made for them and find themselves now on the other side, refusing this love and in desperation because of their condition. They have made the choice. I love this quote by Rob Bell. It says, Love demands freedom. It always has and it always will. We are free to resist, reject, and rebel against God's ways for us. We can have all the hell we want. What happens when you refuse the author of life? You're dead. What happens when love has extended itself to you over and over again and you refuse it because you're trying to empower yourself, trying to establish what you want, your own control? You end up losing what would bring you life and now you find that it's bringing you death. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the anger of the lamb. Why? Because he's out to get you? No, because he was out to get you and you refused to let him. And it's a whole different picture. It's a whole different picture now. And it's a picture we need to keep in mind because as we go through this book, it is the same picture that keeps getting painted. The sacrificial lamb, the anger of the lamb, the martyr, the one who sacrificed himself, is the means by which the world will be one. Is when the world recognizes that these people who we keep killing keep loving. How do you fight that? You can't win. And so God's chessboard is being played, and it's a long game. And this is part of his strategy. Any questions on this chapter? Well, and I think that's what happens throughout our lives, right? When people resist and resist, it's like, oh man, what did I do? I mean, and it happens in so many different layers and scales, right? You have people who've committed crimes and then finally they get caught and they're like, oh man, what did I do? Why did I do this? It was foolish. Why did I try to 
you know, steal or get this, and now I'm going to be imprisoned. What was the point? Well, and that's kind of the picture here, right? That justice is going to be served, but it's being served in a different way. It's not being served by him catching you and imprisoning you. It's being served by you getting, reaping basically what you sow. Any other thoughts? Well, let's pray. Father, I do pray that, Lord, we would recognize that um, you are hearing the cry of your people throughout time and all over the world, Father, that injustice does not escape your eyes or your heart. And Lord, that we, as your people, are called to love as you loved. We are called to live as you lived. And I pray, Father, that even our anger would be like your anger, that it would not be selfish, would not be vindictive, but it would be moved by sacrifice. And Lord, that's a big change for me. I think it's a big change for a lot of us. And I'm not even sure how it all plays out all the time, God. And so I pray that I would wrestle with that as your church has wrestled with it throughout history as those who were reading this for the first time were having to hear these things and deal with them, Lord, that you would help us to do the same. And we thank you that we can now look back on history and see, Father, that you were right. And these who were the weakest and the ones being persecuted did survive. Lord, many were martyred, but your name survived, and your love survived, and your kingdom is still being established. And so we do pray your will would be done, Lord, on earth as is in heaven, and help us to make that a reality in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.